We are wrapping up uh, John chapter 17 this morning, uh, the, the tail end of Jesus' high priestly prayer. And uh, I mentioned this last week, this wasn't just for the 11. This wasn't just for the disciples who are in the upper room with him, but it's also for the church. Um, in the, the passage this morning, starting with verse 20 and going all the way to the end of the chapter, uh, we get to see the innermost desire of Christ, which is to show who God is to the church and to the world through the church. Um, we, we get to see the importance that Jesus puts on that message as he gets ready to leave. He gets ready to be separated from the church. He gets ready to go to his death and then to ascend after his, his 40 days after the resurrection to ascend to the Father and to send the Holy Spirit to the church. And most of all, at the end of this, and I think this is a, a very telling and very important message at the end of this chapter, we also get to see that even though Jesus isn't here, He's not walking around with us here today, He's continuing to work in and through the church. And that's where we leave off at the end of chapter 17. So I'm going to invite you all to stand. Uh, we're going to be starting with verse 20 and reading through the rest of the chapter. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. They also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which, with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, this promise, this desire that you have for unity within your body, the church, and within the relationship that the church has to you through Christ your Son. Father, help us to understand that unity and help us to desire to seek to live a life that reflects Jesus and not us in this world. And we pray this because of Christ. Amen. Have a seat, please. So right there in verse 20, Jesus moves the scope of the prayer from the 11 to the church. Um... The essence of the communion of the saints 
in the church, the togetherness that we celebrate when we come together, the reason that the writer of Hebrews tell us, do not forsake the gathering together. Now, that's that's important because the writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake it, but he doesn't say that you're a bad Christian if you miss a week. (laughs) He doesn't say that that is the measure of our faith. If you take the words in Hebrews, don't forsake the gathering, and you take the words of Jesus here, that he wants the church to be one, you understand why we're called to gather together. Because we can't be unified in anything if we're off spinning in our own little orbits. The point of the Lord's Supper is to celebrate the unity of the church. That's Jesus' desire for the church, is that the church be one. The same way he and the Father are one. He wants us to be unified in what we do. He wants us to be unified in what we desire. He wants us to be unified in the mission to make God's glory known to the world. Not only that, but he wants us to be united in God's will. His desire is for us to be united with him, with the Father, with the Spirit. Now, this isn't some kind of, it, it just, I gotta say this, this isn't some kind of pantheistic thing where, you know, the, the pantheists will say that God is in everything and we are in God. Right? That means that that, that lamp right there, that's God. And, and the, the podium, that's God. And the offering plate, that's God. And, and I'm God, you're God. And it sounds like an episode of Oprah. Um, everybody's God. Right? That's not what Jesus is saying. This is the union that we have because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The promise that Jesus gives at the end of Matthew 28. Think about that for a second. When he tells the disciples that it's better that he's going to be away from them, he says, because then he can send the Spirit. And the Spirit will comfort them and lead them to all righteousness and convict of unrighteousness and and help us to grow in all those things. And then at the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, verse 18, the Great Commission, you all ought to know that by now, I've said it enough times, right? At the end of Matthew chapter 28, he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Holy Spirit, right? And then at the very end, he says, And I am with you until the end of the age. This is after the resurrection. So he's not talking about he is with them until he ascends into heaven. Because that wouldn't make any sense. Because this this is right before he ascends into heaven. So I'm with you until the end of the age. Poop! I'm gone. It's the end of the age. That's not what he's talking about. I am with you till the end of the age. He's going to be with us. So we have the Father who is omnipresent, right? He is everywhere. He exists outside of space and time. He is not constrained by His creation. If, if, if you want to really wrap your head around some metaphysical stuff, right? God is not constrained by space. 
He is pure spirit. He is everywhere all the time. He doesn't have to... We we get this misconception because we are so limited to our physical understanding. We sing the song, His eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches over me, right? That's how the song goes. So I don't know about you, but being a visual person like I am, when I hear a statement like that, his eye is on the sparrow, that to me paints a picture of God looking at that sparrow. Okay? No big deal. But if I look at a sparrow, what else am I going to see? I'm not going to see anything. Because I can only see one thing at a time. I've got a peripheral vision and, you know, I may see the hawk that swoops in and picks the sparrow off or, or the, the cat that jumps up onto the shrub and takes the sparrow down or, or I might see the car driving past in the background. But I have a limited field of focus. As we age, that gets even more limited, right? God doesn't have a limited field of focus. The psalmist says, Where can I hide from God? If I climb to the highest mountain peak, He is there. If I go to the depths of the sea, He is there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, He is there. God is everywhere. He is with His children. Now, if we consider God the Father being the one who is everywhere, right? Because it's easy for us to understand He's omnipresent. We have Jesus the Son, who is also omnipresent, but we tend to think of Jesus in His physical form, because that's how He appeared to us. He can't be everywhere in His physical form at all times, because He was a man. He was in one place at one time like we are, no matter how much my supervisors have wanted me to be in three different places at once. But Jesus is also omnipresent. He is with his children, with his followers, and with his brothers and sisters. That's us, the church. Even to the end of the age. And then we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you really want to get personal, the Holy Spirit lives in us. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But particularly, the Holy Spirit lives in us. Jesus says that He wants us to abide in Him and His commands to abide in us. Remember we looked at that here a couple, three, four, five, six weeks ago? (laughs) However long ago it was, right? We live in Him... And His commands live in us. His words live in us. The Holy Spirit lives in us, informing our thoughts and leading our consciences, right? The Holy Spirit is what causes conviction of sin. I I, I was having a discussion here a few weeks ago with a a guy at a, a fellowship Bible study that we do on base on Tuesdays. And uh, he had been, he, he's been in some bad churches. Let's just put it that way. He's been in some bad churches. And uh, he was uncomfortable with the idea of the Holy Spirit bringing conviction for sin. Because the, the only thing 
that he had grown up with in his church background was condemnation for sin. Satan's the one that brings condemnation. Satan's the one that sits there and taps on our shoulder and says, how dare you call yourself a Christian? Remember what you did last week? God can't use you. The Holy Spirit brings conviction for sin. When I sin, it's the Holy Spirit going on my conscience that makes me understand that I've fallen short of what God desires and draws me to repent. So we have the Father everywhere with us. We have the Son everywhere with us. We have the Holy Spirit everywhere with us, leading us. And if we submit to what the Holy Spirit calls us to do, then we're going to seek to honor the Father in our words and our deeds. Now Jesus says in verse 21, let me, let me, let me read this, that they may all be one just as you Father are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? Look at the end of verse 21. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus doesn't want the church to be unified just so that we can all get along. He doesn't want the church to be unified so that people can look and see this ginormous body of people who all look and think and act the same way. The purpose of this unity, Jesus says, is so that the world can know who Jesus was. Think about that for a minute. This congregation, at this point in time, is a member of the Southern Baptist Convention. Okay? So we fall under that big umbrella that says Southern Baptist. Do you know within the Southern Baptist denomination how many arguments and disagreements are currently going on right now? Okay? You have the Reformed believers against the traditionalist believers who are, who are what we consider to be one or maybe two-point Reformed believers who, who don't believe the five points of the Reformation. You have the sinner's prayer versus the that's a man-made construct that leads people to a false assurance of salvation. You have the must-have-an-altar-call-in-every-service to the if I'm preaching to the saints, why do I need to call everybody to salvation every week? You have the King James only 1611s, which nobody, if you ever see a church that says they use the 1611, they're lying to you. The 1611 was the original publishing of the King James Bible. It's unreadable. The English is completely different from what we use today. Not just the these and thous, but the letters are different. F's didn't exist in 1611. They were S's. Okay? So you have the King James Onlyists, and then you have the more modern translationists. There are so many conflicts just within the SBC. And then you have the differences and disagreements between the Baptists, the Southern Baptists, 
and the Independent Fundamental Baptists. And the differences between the IFBs, the Independent Fundamental Baptists, and the North American Baptists, and the American Baptists, and the Association of Reformed Baptist Churches of America. And we're still in Baptists. Then we throw in Methodists. You got United Methodists, you have non-United Methodists, and you have Wesleyan Methodists. And there's divisions within those. And then you had the Presbyterians. Good, I can't even keep track of all the Presbyterian denominations. The PCA, the PCUSA, the OPC. Those are the three big ones that I know about. And it, it, the PCA has gotten so liberal that the conservative, which is scary, the conservative group of the PCA has split off and formed their own denomination. And then there's the charismatics who are in the Presbyterian church and who are in the Baptist church and who are in the Methodist church. Then you have the Assemblies of God, you have the Church of Christ, you have the Church of God in Christ, you have the... All of these different flavors. Then we've got Lutherans. There's two different main splits within the Lutheran church. Two different synods that they fall under. And this is all just in the United States. I haven't even hit the church in Europe. Even the, the, the Episcopal church, Anglican church everywhere else, right? There are divisions within the Episcopal and the Anglican communion. There are differences within the Roman Catholic Church. And then we have the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox. Right? Now, all of that being said, oh, and we haven't even hit non-denominational churches, (laughs) and parachurch ministries, like Campus Crusade for Christ, they call themselves CRU now, C-R-U, It's more edgy for college students, I guess. Samaritan's Purse, right? All of these different groups within the church, all these different divisions and separations within the church, what would the impact on the world be if the church didn't have all these divisions? Wrap your head around that for a minute. That would be unimaginable if the people of the church were as united with the in spirit with the Godhead as Jesus says he desires right there. The impact of the gospel on the world, the, the statement made of the disciples, you remember when when, when uh Paul's on his journeys. There's there's a point where where they're gathered at this one particular house and the people go to the rulers of the city and they say that the men who are turning the world upside down are at so-and-so's house. Right? If the church were that unified, we would turn the world upside down. But, because of our sin nature, 
because of our inclination towards setting ourselves up as the one who is right and everybody else is wrong, even within the church, because of our sinful desires and activities, the the idea that I have to be the one who's in charge, the church will never see that much unity. In fact, it will only continue to splinter until we stand face to face with Jesus. Now, am I saying that denominational differences are bad? No. There are things that other denominations practice and accept as being within the bound Orthodox Christianity that I cannot. I do not understand or agree with baptismal regeneration, those people who say that you must be baptized to be saved, that it's actually the act of baptism that saves you. I cannot agree with that. Just can't. That's counter to what I understand Scripture. But see, that's counter to what I understand in Scripture. Paul says we see through a mirror darkly. I could be wrong. I need to understand in my life that I could be wrong on a lot of things. And there could come a point when I stand before Jesus where he says, well done, good and faithful servant, except for this list, that you were wrong. Okay, I was wrong. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me anyways. The unity of the church, the idea that the church is not just here, is so important. Remember how I've said that if you see something repeated in Scripture, or it's in one place and then it's in another place, it's probably something you ought to pay attention to. And if you see it here and you see it here and you see it here, that's to the, to the superlative degree, that is the most important thing. Like in Isaiah, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, the seraphim, Floating next to them, you know, covering their face, covering their feet, flapping their wings. What were they saying about God? Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holier, holiest is the Lord God Almighty. Jesus repeats the idea of the unity of the church in the oneness with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit two more times. Verse 22, verse 23. Verse 22, the glory that you've given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love me even as love them, even as you love me. This is about as much for not teaching During this prayer, because remember, this is a prayer. Jesus is talking to his father. He's not talking to the disciples. He's talking to the father. But man, is he foot stomping a very important message for the church. The more we are in Christ, the more we're yielded to the leading of the Holy Spirit, the more we are submitted to the commands that he gave to us, the more Jesus is going to shine through in our life. The more we're going to, as Paul puts it, I believe it's in Romans chapter 12, that we are going to be conformed 
sorry, not conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds, right, into the image of Christ, we're going to look more like Him the more we let the Holy Spirit lead us in the way we think and act. Jesus has been talking about this in the prayer life of the disciples. When you ask anything in my name, the Father will answer. It will be given to you. If we look more like Christ. The more Jesus shines through in our lives, the more the world is going to know that what we say we believe is real. I've quoted this statistic. It's been a while since I've said it. Uh, I think the survey was done in like 2009, 2010, 2011. It was done here on the coast. And it was a, 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 a an area within like five miles of Highway 90. Right? To figure out how many unchurched people there were. And like 85% of the coast is unchurched. Think about that for a second. The coast. What city sits right in the middle of the coast? Gulfport does. Gulfport does. And right next to Gulfport on the western side is Long Beach. And then there's past Christiane, right? And how much distance is there between Long Beach and Gulfport? None. They're, they're right there. There's, there's a line on a map. How much distance is there between Long Beach and past Christiane? None. Okay. On the eastern side of Gulfport, what do we have? Biloxi. And how much distance is there between Biloxi and Gulfport? None. In fact, that great land-eating mass that is Biloxi is trying to surround every other city on the coast. And then we have Ocean Springs. Now, once you get beyond Ocean Springs, there's a whole lot of no man's land because it's all swamp that they filled in and put some houses on. But within five miles of Highway 90... Something like 80 to 85% of the people who live there are unchurched. Oh, by the way, what's the second largest city in the state of Mississippi? Gulfport. Yes. And it's not far behind Jackson, which is the biggest. 85% of the second largest city in the state is unchurched. Wrap your head around that for a second. Oh, and of that that percentage that's unchurched, most of them have never been churched. It's not that they used to go to church and decided against it. Have never been churched. Now, part of the survey that was done was to ask them, why don't you go to church? Why don't people go to church? Here's the answer that was given. In a nutshell, the people in the church, not this church, not Bel Air, not the, the, the little church on the corner, not empowerment, but the people in the church in general, don't love God, don't love each other, and they certainly don't love people outside the church.
Now, where would they get that idea? Remember what I was talking about with the divisions within the church? Just within the Southern Baptist Convention. Just within the local association. Now, we don't have battles within the local association. We all pretty well get along with each other. But there are some pastors in this association that I will not go associate with because our beliefs are so different. I don't want it to turn into a battle. The world looks at the church and doesn't see Jesus. They look at the church and they see us looking like the rest of the world. And that's why they don't see a reason to join the church. Because if I want to join an organization where 50% of the people don't agree with me, and that's okay, I can just not associate with them, I'll go join a country club. There I get to play golf. I'll join the Lions Club. They have a visible ministry. Did you know that? Did you know the Lions Club has a visible ministry? The Lions Club is very well known throughout the United States and the world for ministering to people with vision problems. They run summer camps for blind kids. They give away free glasses to people. If you go to Walmart, to the Vision Center, and you go to get a new pair of glasses, you will notice in the back of the Vision Center there is a collection box labeled for the Lions Club. You take your old glasses, you drop them in the box. Lions Club will polish the lenses, repair the frames, and give them to people who don't have the means to pay for glasses. Think about that for a minute. What's the church known for ministering to? Cricket, cricket, cricket. Right? We're known for building big buildings. Now, there are some churches that are known for ministering to homeless communities, ministering to veterans, ministering to um, crisis pregnancies like the Women's Resource Center. There are some churches that are known for that kind of stuff, but not many. Most people think and believe that the church's biggest charity is the church. The more we are unified with Christ, the more we're unified with the Holy Spirit, the more we're unified with the Father, the more the world is going to see something different about the way we live. And the more they're going to ask the why questions. You know, Peter tells the church that we need to be always ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us. Always be ready to tell people why we have hope. Not because they're going to be attacking us, but they will. But because people should be asking us, why do you have so much hope? Why do you have so much joy? Why do you have so much peace? Peter says we should always be ready to give that defense. When are the people going to ask why if we all look like the world? They aren't. Because if we act like we have no peace, if we act like we have no joy, and we act like we have no hope, then we act like everybody else. they got nothing to ask about. Now, there is a corollary to this, too. 
the more Jesus shines through in our lives, the more the world is going to hate us because they hated him. The more the religious folks are going to target the believers. There's a difference. Jesus' final petition in this prayer, verse 24. After he hammers home the importance of the unity within the church, his final petition is that those who he has been given, that is the church, may be with him where he is to see his glory. He wants us to see his glory wherever he is. He wants us to see the glory that was his before the foundation of the world. Now, something important for us to, and and again, human being, when I hear somebody talk about their glory or their majesty or their power or their authority, that sort of thing, if it's a human being saying that, you know what my first reaction is? What makes them so important? But notice what Jesus says about His glory. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus doesn't want to show off His glory because of His authority and His power and His greatness and His majesty. He doesn't want to show off His glory because He's part of the Godhead. His glory is a reflection of the love that the Father has for the Son. Take a look at verse 22 again. The beginning of verse 22. The glory that you have given me, which is the reflection of the Father's love for the Son, I have given to them, the church. The love that the Father has for the Son, reflected in the glory that the Son has, the Son has given to the church. We should be shining with the love that the Father has for the Son. How does God the Father love the Son? Perfectly, completely, utterly, and totally. God's love should shine through us. This all ties together. When the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus, they said, what's the greatest commandment? What did he say? Love God with all you've got, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. With God's perfect love. We ought to be showing God's love in a unified way with the rest of the church. But not only do we see what Jesus is asking for, 
we get a picture of what he's not asking for. What would make things easier for the church? Well, just be honest. Okay, yeah, that would be good. Having a, a visible, you know, maybe a barcode or something that would allow us to see who is a believer and who's not. Maybe one for the unsaved people so that we know who will be a believer and who won't, so we can target our evangelism, right? What about endless resources? Wouldn't it be much easier for the church to do what the church has to do if we didn't have to worry about keeping the lights on or buying toilet paper? Okay? What about... Power and prestige for the church to be prestigious enough, powerful enough to be able to change laws for the good, for God's glory, according to God's will. Would that not be amazing for the church to be able to stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord, this law is against God's will change it, and for the governments of the world to say, okay, and do it. Wouldn't that be awesome? Okay. Jesus does not ask for the church to have all the resources necessary to impact the world. To feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to minister to the orphan and the widow and the foreigner, He doesn't ask that for the church. He doesn't ask for the church to have power and prestige, to influence governments, to make Christianity part of the thread of world government, to force it to be the only approved religious belief system. He doesn't ask that. He doesn't pray for the healing of illnesses within the church. He doesn't pray for the deliverance from oppression, for the end of persecution. He doesn't ask for those things for the church. We might want them because they would make it easier for us to spread the gospel. And if I don't have to worry about going to Iran and telling people about Jesus and getting put in jail and beat to death, make it easier for lies, wouldn't it? Yeah. If people in China didn't have to share books of the Bible amongst themselves, if they didn't have to meet in secret house churches, Because it's the church gatherings that are illegal in China. It's not religion itself. It's not the belief in Christ itself. It's the gathering of believers that is illegal in China. If they didn't have to go through that, wouldn't it be more likely that the church would spread? The answer is no. Now think about this for a second. This is as close as I'm going to get to picking on the Roman Catholic Church. Okay? And it's not just the Roman Catholic Church, but I'm going to pick on the Anglican Communion, um, the Episcopal Church in the United States. I'm going to pick on the uh, Greek, Eastern, and Russian Orthodox churches. Because they are all structured similarly according to church government. Okay? Roman Catholic Church, Episcopal Church, Orthodox Church. Member puts money in the plate or in the offering box at the front door. 
That money does not stay in that local building. That money is packaged up, deposited into the bank, turned into a check. That check is forwarded or wired or something to the diocese. The diocese takes that check and the checks from all the other churches and they package them all together and they wire transfer them or they send a check or whatever to the archdiocese. The archdiocese takes all of those checks together with the rest of them and they forward it off to the Vatican or to um, Canterbury, the Anglican Communion, or to wherever the Greek and Eastern Orthodox churches have their main headquarters. Constantinople, I think, is the uh, Eastern Orthodox um, Istanbul, not Constantinople. That's a song, by the way. Uh, Completely off topic. But all of that money gets put together and then gets distributed back out to the churches. And those churches have powerful influence in their countries. I mean, the Anglican Communion is officially known as the Church of England. That's the national religion. They have ties to the government. The Roman Catholic Church. Okay? Not just Rome. Most of Europe has ties to the Roman Catholic Church. Greek Orthodox. Eastern Orthodox, these churches have great influence and power in the government, right? What church do we tend to think of as probably one of the most corrupt in church history? The Roman Catholic Church. Look at their facilities. Look at the Vatican. They have entire outbuildings that are gilded with gold leaf. We have plastic communion cups. (laughs) Theirs have real jewels on them. Endless resources, power, prestige, influence, freedom from illnesses. These things don't enable the church to do ministry. They hinder the church from doing ministry. I'll explain to you how I say that. What is the one thing that the church in the United States has that the church just about everywhere else around the world does not? Government protection. We have a freedom to assembly. We have a freedom to worship as our consciences see fit in the United States. It is written in the Bill of Rights. First Amendment to the Constitution. We don't have to worry about persecution. You know, persecution is the one thing that causes faith to get stronger. And if you look at the state of the church in the United States, it's amazing. We, we, we tend to be so colonial in our thoughts. When we think about people sending missionaries, we think about people sending missionaries to other countries, right? You know, one of the biggest mission fields in the world is the United States. Other countries send missionaries. Other Get this, there are Southern Baptist churches in Europe. They're members of the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention. There are Southern Baptist churches in Canada. Doesn't make a lot of sense because you don't get a whole lot more north than that. (laughs) Yeah, Southern Canada. Northern Canada is the Arctic Circle. There's nothing, uh, polar bears don't have churches, right? There are Southern Baptist churches in Canada 
that use money gathered for the North American Mission Board to send missionaries to the U.S. What? That just... Because we think we're the United States. We're founded on Judeo-Christian principles. Sadly, that's a common thought in this country. You're a Christian because you're American. That's not how this works. Power, prestige, delivery from persecution will only weaken the church. And feed our corruption. As Jesus finishes the prayer, verse 25 and 26, he touches again on these points of unity. He says, Even though the world does not know you, I know you. The Son knows the Father. And these know you that you have sent me. The church knows the Father. Or at least we should. Because of that relationship, we can have that peace that surpasses understanding. We can have that peace with God that the world can't give. Too often we're trying to have peace with the world. Now, caveat, asterisk, footnote, however you want to put it if you're making notes, this doesn't give us license to be jerks. (laughs) Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Not beat your neighbor up so that they agree with you to shut you up. Jesus has made the Father known to the church. And he says he will continue to make God known. His authority, God's authority, his glory, his power, his righteousness, his holiness will be known to the world. And he doesn't say accepted by the world. He says known to the world. But we, the church, have to change. We have got to, I was having this discussion last weekend, last Sunday night. Um, I've, I've kind of hornswoggled myself into teaching the, uh, uh, the, the oldest group of Awana children on Sunday nights. Natalie needed help. And I volunteered because I'm too stupid to say no. Before the club started, I was having a talk with uh, Miss Cheryl, and we were talking about the state of Olivet. Cheryl's first husband was a pastor. He was killed in a plane crash. Rough, rough location for ministry. He was a pastor in the Virgin Islands. <laughs> God sends me to Gulfport. It's because I didn't need an island, I guess, right? 
But Cheryl and I were talking about the state of Olivet. And she was remarking about the, the, the sadness that comes with a congregation closing. And I made this statement to her. When the church, the people of the church, stop being the church and just go to the church, the congregation is dead. A long time before I set foot in these facilities, that had happened. Not with everybody. Not with everybody who was here. But with an increasing percentage of the population. More and more people came to the church instead of being the church. After today... I want to challenge you, after today, understand your calling from Christ is to be the church. The living stones abide in Christ, live in Christ, all that you do. Do to the glory of God. Jesus says, whether you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. Right? How much more menial do you get than eating and drinking? They're basic survival functions. Jesus says, do it to God's glory. Jesus wants the love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the church to show through the church and show Christ through the church, to the world. We cannot do that if the only activity we do as the church is go to church. Your faith has to have feet. It has to have hands. And it has to have a heart changed to look like the heart of Christ. That brings the church to unity. Because even in those doctrinal things that I disagree with, I cannot worship with somebody who teaches baptismal regeneration. You know what I can do with them? I can minister to people. I can work alongside them. I might have a hard time going and fellowshipping with a minister who believes that my particular uh, soteriology, that's doctrine of salvation, is wrong. I may have a hard time worshiping with them because they're going to put me down in the things that they teach. I may have a hard time worshiping with somebody who is a dispensational premillennialist. I might have a hard time listening to their sermons because everything that they teach is, is colored by that. But... If they're in Christ and I'm in Christ and we have that communion of the saints, I can go feed the homeless with them. I can go minister to the unwed mothers who are considering an abortion. I can go knock on doors and share Jesus with people if I have the love of Christ. It's that love, that unity, that presence of Christ that is the point 
that is the driving force, that is the, the, the command behind, do this in remembrance of me. When we partake, when we take the crackers, when we take the bread, Jesus says, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. His body was broken into pieces so that we could be one body. When we take the fruit of the vine, that's right, we have glass cups now. When we take the, that tray is awful heavy for plastic. When we take of the cup, he says, this is my blood that is poured out. The sin that causes us to be separated has been paid for. It's gone. We are unified. We are celebrating our union with the church ages past and ages to come until Christ returns. I want you to consider that as we prepare this morning. I don't have any music set up. But I just want you to pray for just a couple of minutes. Silently to yourself. Consider. I want you to ask God this. Number one, is there any sin in my life right now that I need to confess? Anything that's keeping me separated from God. Number two. How can I show the love of Christ in my life more faithfully? Let's go to a silent time of prayer. Father, once again, we thank you for the work that has been accomplished through this congregation over the years. Father, we praise you that the work in this community is not done. Father, this morning we come because we want to be that unified body in Christ. We want to be unified with the Spirit. We want to be in unity with the Son, with the Father. Father, with one another. Your word commands us to participate in this ordinance. The church has considered this to be a sacrament, a means of grace. Father, if nothing else, it is a display of grace. A grace that you have given the church. Forgiveness, redemption, love, unity, that we cannot do not and will not ever understand completely. Father, I pray this morning that we would be the church. Wherever we happen to be, wherever we happen to go, let your Son shine through His church. We pray this because of Jesus. I'm going to pass out the elements, if you would hold on to them until we're all served and can participate together. In Luke's Gospel, 
chapter 22, Luke's account of the upper room, which he got from Peter. Starting in verse 14, Luke writes, When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us eat together. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. That's the atmosphere as they drank together. With that act, we declare the gospel to one another and to the world. But only if we have the love of Christ showing through our lives. 